following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in downtown Fredericksburg, Virginia. Well, good morning again. Uh, I, I trust the, the piece has been sufficiently passed, so grab, it, grab a, uh, your seat again in your Bibles. Uh, I should mention that we do have an, um, a nursery in the back uh, right across the, the hall from the, uh, from the children's area. Uh, so if you need to take your kid back there, nurse or cry, there's some toys and some rocking chairs back there. So please, uh, but you know, we do love kids um, in the room. So don't feel free like we're kicking you out. That being said, please open your, your copy of God's Word to Galatians chapter 6. This is the second to last sermon in the book of Galatians that we'll study for some time. Over the last uh, several months, we have been making our way through Paul's epistle to the churches of Galatia. And let me just give us just a, a really high-level overview of where we've been so that we know where we're at this morning uh, and what Paul is really urging his readers and us this morning to, to do. He began the letter to the churches in Galatia by reminding them that he was called by Christ and his authority as an apostle does not come from any other man, does not come from any other church, it doesn't even come from himself, it comes directly from Christ. And because he was sent and commissioned by Christ himself, the gospel he preaches is to be taken authoritatively. Any other gospel which comes in from the outside, no matter who it's preached from, if it does not line up or is not in accord with the gospel from Christ, it is to be rejected, and those who preach it are to be accursed. So he confirms that his authority to preach the gospel comes from Christ himself. And then he defends that gospel, namely, how it is that we are to be saved which is not by our works, but by faith alone. The word that he uses there is justification. That word meaning to be declared righteous before God, to be stamped and declared righteous and not sinful by God. The question on the Galatians' minds, the conflict there in the churches, was that certain men had come and said, in order to be justified, you had to earn, by keeping the law, your salvation. And you had to keep your salvation by obeying the commands of the law, namely the law of Moses, and particularly the command to be circumcised. And so Paul saw very clearly that, that was antithetical to the gospel that he preached when he had first come to, Galatians, to the Galatians. And so he defended the gospel of justification by faith alone and not by works and how important and central to our understanding of the faith that idea is. In the last two chapters, from chapter 5 and on, Paul has now been helping us understand what we are to do with the doctrine of justification by faith, namely, what the Christian life looks like if it's not to be earned by works, if it's not to be kept by works, what do works then have to do with the Christian life? How do we look at and understand the law? And to that, Paul says, that the law can guide us and lead us to Christ, but it is not the foundation of our justification. Our faith is. And therefore, the Spirit 
is to lead us in obedience and in submission to the will and the word of God, but our hope is not placed in our obedience, but in Christ, who sends the Spirit and leads us in obedience. And one of the things that the Spirit does when He comes is He leads us in obedience and grows in us the fruit of the Spirit. He helps us put to death the deeds of the body, the flesh, what Paul here calls in chapter 5, the works of the flesh, ranging anywhere from sexual immorality to even envy, jealousy, strife, and anger. And instead, by denying the flesh, walking in the Spirit, producing those fruit of the Spirit. Really, those characteristics which resemble most perfectly God. So as we are conformed into the image, as we walk in step with the Spirit, we become Christ-like. And that's one of the evidences of the Christian life. To be assured of our own salvation, we can take a look at ourselves and see, do we possess and are we growing in these fruit? Then we can begin to have confidence that the Spirit is indeed working in us. That our foundation is not in our own work, but on the work of Christ. In the very last bit of chapter 6 here, Paul's been urging the, the Corinthian church then to take this and embody it in their community. Namely, it's not just about you and your growth as a Christian, but it's about the community as the body of Christ gathering together, growing together for the glory of Christ. So we saw in the beginning of chapter 6 that it is the, the spiritually mature person's responsibility to care for the spiritually immature to help carry the burden of those who are caught in transgressions, who are troubled and vexed and despairing because of their sin, to rebuke them or correct them in grace, to do so with gentleness, but to seek after, with a spirit of gentleness and responsibility, those who are wayward in their faith or are burdened under the weight and the heaviness of sin. In fact, what we see in chapter 6, before we get to the ending, beginning in verse 11, is that there are three main areas of maturity that Paul calls his readers and calls us to step into. Three areas of responsibility that the Christian has. And last week we saw that that first area of responsibility was one of corporate responsibility. The responsibility we have for one another. Well, this morning we'll see in the text that the two other responsibilities we have are to ourselves, our individual responsibilities, and to God, or our divine-oriented responsibilities. So let's look at the text. We're going to begin in chapter one of verse of, of chapter six, verse one, and go through verse ten. There, Paul writes. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But each, let each one test his own work and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit 
will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. And so then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are in the household of faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word, and ask now by your Spirit that our hearts and minds would be illuminated to receive the good news of Jesus, to believe it, and as Paul encourages us through your word, to walk in it, faithfully serving you and loving others. God, we ask for your help in our, our tension, in our understanding. Lord, may our minds be attentive to your word, our ears be open to its challenges. Let our hearts be clear in reflection upon your word. And may the Spirit empower us to walk faithfully in obedience to it. God, we ask for your help. We pray as always in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in God's kind providence, today is the first day of 2023. Normally, we don't make a big deal about certain days of the year, but I just couldn't help myself this year. I'm taking it as God's kind providence to me to speak to you about your New Year's resolutions. Now, some of you are automatically going to dismiss the idea of resolutions, you who particularly are well-to-do and know, have productivity. But for the rest of us, we tend to think about the New Year as a fresh start. We tend to think about how we can start and learn from the past year, build new habits, build better habits, destroy old habits, get rid of those bad habits. We want to change and grow. And particularly when it comes to our own spiritual life, there's often so much that we want to do and grow, and it becomes overwhelming. Well, what I want to do is just help you as you think about what your spiritual life and development looks like, as you're planning and setting your goals for 2023, if you haven't begun already, is to put in front of you a picture of godly Christian maturity so that you can aim for this as you set your goals. As you ask yourself, what habits do I need to form or break as I pursue this picture of godly Christian maturity that Paul describes? In fact, I've called this sermon this morning, How to Be Mature in 2023. If you like lists, there's five. I'll give them to you in a moment. But really what I'm doing here is just looking at the text, and I'm taking five exhortations or commands, the imperatives of the text, and I'm saying, what is Paul intending a Christian who is trusting in the gospel, believing, and is justified by faith alone, look like when they take that and live it out? And so we'll see five things that a mature Christians do. Take these exhortations, commands in the text, and a picture emerges of a godly, mature Christian that embodies the principles of the gospel. And this is what I put before you this morning. We pray for God's help in our conforming to this image. So first is that mature Christians keep watch on themselves. Look at verse 1. It says again, If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him with a spirit of gentleness. We saw last week what that means, the obligation to care for those who are spiritually immature. But notice what he says now. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Now he's speaking there to the same one he's encouraged and exhorted to carry the burden of others. In verse 2. 
those who are spiritual, while they are working to restore and care for the spiritually immature, are at the same time required to keep watch on themselves, lest they too fall into temptation, lest they too become ensnared by sin or pride or any other trap. Mature Christians, those who are spiritual, and by that he means those who embody and walk in the step of the Spirit, characterized by the fruit of the Spirit there in verse 22 of chapter 5, are to keep watch on themselves. That is, to study and to be mindful of what God has called them to do, even as they remind others what God has called them to be. We must keep watch even as we care for others. That we are not off the hook for caring for our own soul and tending to our own spiritual business while we care for the business and the souls of others. Parents, this is important. As we tend to the nurturing lives, spiritual lives of our children, we have to be careful not to so neglect our own spiritual lives that we become empty, hollow shells of Christians who come to church, do and say the right things, and yet what we pass on is only a list of rules of do's and don'ts. When we are mindful of ourselves, we are actually more effective in the helping of others. So Paul here says, be careful, mind your own business as you care and mind the business of others. Now this doesn't mean you're a busybody or you're nosy, but as you genuinely help those who are weak and are infirmed in their sin among you, be careful not to simply neglect your own spiritual health. Busyness is a constant temptation to sin because it's easy once you're, you're giving yourself to other people, serving, pouring yourself out, teaching, instructing, encouraging, leading Bible studies, meeting with prayer, you've forgotten all of a sudden to take a moment and pray. You've neglected your own Bible reading. You don't make enough time for your important discipleship meetings or to spend time with a friend, a brother, a sister, a counselor to be encouraged in the Word. None of us are immune from this temptation. In fact, Paul will tell Timothy, his protege, who's in Ephesus, who's pastoring a church there, trying to correct some things that had gone wrong. He tells, after, after setting a bunch of things in order, he tells Timothy, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. So notice what he says there to Timothy. You have a job to do as you care for the flock, as you deal with those who are teaching and bringing a false gospel, who are stirring up dissension and strife among the body. You need to keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Your job is to impart and to instruct and to exhort and to encourage and to come alongside of these brothers and sisters and grow them in their faith. But, Timothy, keep a close watch on yourself. Well, if Paul can exhort Timothy, a student of the Master, how much more do we need that same exhortation to keep a watch on ourselves? So, Christian maturity means that we are keeping watch on ourselves. This is especially true as we continue to encourage or even rebuke, correct others in gentleness. The temptation is when we come into the lives of other people to blur the distinction of right and wrong. We like to see the lines of doctrinal standards get a little fuzzy. 
Well, the, the, the big categories of right and wrong remain, but exactly where you may be on one side of the line or another is not as important. And so we kind of blur those lines of doctrinal standards. We lower the bar, perhaps, of what Jesus commands in order for us selfishly to avoid the hard and, and the sometimes messy work of confrontation, of serving others, keeping a watch on ourselves and what Paul exhorts Timothy on our teaching means also keeping a watch on our doctrine so that as we serve others by carrying their burdens, by restoring them with a spirit of gentleness, we are able to make clear what the Bible teaches. The temptation to blur those lines, to lower the bar, is really just a temptation to avoid the hard work of one another in the church. But keeping a watch on yourselves ultimately means being clear about what the Bible teaches, both for you and for others. But part of keeping watch over our own souls as mature Christians ought to means also that we ensure that we are able to serve from a full heart because we cannot give what we do not have. We are unable to serve if we are empty ourselves. As it's often been said, an empty cup cannot overflow. An empty cup cannot pour itself into others. Keeping watch on ourselves means that if we are to care for others, we must first think and care for ourselves. This is not the same as assuming we are better or more important than others. Paul and Jesus himself exhort us to always consider others more important than ourselves. But to care for ourselves enables us to care for others better. Perhaps you've been there. You've served your children tirelessly for weeks without any reciprocity. You've given yourself to meeting with a new Christian who's left you high and dry for the third time this week. That brother's not answering your texts. The sister's not being as forthcoming. You've given so much of yourself that you're simply exhausted and you realize you haven't spent time with the Lord on your own. You don't feel like you can give any more to these people you don't have the strength, the capacity. Keeping watch on yourself means that you tend to those matters so that you don't run dry, that your cup doesn't run empty, that you're able to continue to pour yourself out for others. Now, to be sure, this requires divine strength. The, the energy and the strength comes from the Spirit, but it is in our communion with God through the ordinary means of grace, our church, our song singing, our reading of the Bible, our praying, by which that cup is then filled so that we can pour ourselves out for others. So some of you in here have neglected your own soul this year, and you're looking to 2023, not quite sure how you're going to get yourself out of the hole that you've dug yourself in this last year. You've abrogated your spiritual care to other people, to the Bible study leader, to the small group leader, to, to your elders, to the Bible study, to the podcast, to the sermon audio. The spiritual care, you think, comes from others and not primarily from yourselves. And that there are people in your lives who should be caring for you, tending to you. As elders, we are to shepherd you. Yet if you've neglected your own soul, you're probably very discouraged and feeling the effects. Perhaps you've tried serving, but you've just got nothing else left in the tank. Friends, be encouraged that Christians have been given the Spirit that you may commune with God through His Word and prayer and in fellowship with others so that you would be filled with love 
in order that you are more effective and serviceable in your ministry to other people. It is not my job alone as a pastor to administer the gospel to you, but our job together to administer the gospel to one another as we keep watch even on ourselves. So the first mark of a mature Christian, that first bullseye, is to keep watch on yourself. Secondly, mature Christians test their own work. Mature Christians test their own work. He says in verse 4, let each one test his own work. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. What does he mean by this? Well, to test is to examine or to prove something to be genuine. It's to refine and to see the result of something as true, as right, as good. So Paul exhorts the mature Christians among them in, in the immature Christians to grow into such a maturity that you review and examine or test your work to prove its genuineness. This is not introspective nasal gazing. Rather, it is genuine biblical self-examination. Now, the tendency is to overanalyze our thoughts and our feelings. And at times, analyzing those things can be helpful. But here the testing is more like an examination of your works to test its source, its origin, its strength. Let me give you three examples from other parts of the Bible. Two from Paul, one from Peter. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, Paul exhorts the believers there. He says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Christ Jesus is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? There Paul encourages the Christians to take a look at their lives, to examine themselves measured against a certain standard, to see and to prove and to understand, really to confirm for themselves that they belong to Christ. If they fail the test, it may be a sign that they are indeed not Christian. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who drinks and eats and drinks without discerning the body and drinks, uh, and drinks judgment upon himself. Anyone who drink, eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. Here in the context, he's speaking, of course, about the Lord's Supper. But the encouragement here, the exhortation, is to examine yourself as you participate in this ordinance so that you can know for sure that what you are doing will not heap judgment upon yourself, but again, confirm for you that you are in Christ. Peter says in 2 Peter verse 10 of chapter 1, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, the list of qualities he's listed just previously, you will never fall. So the exhortation from the apostles is clear that you should examine yourself regularly. This is not a greater time in the year than today to go home and examine yourself, your, your faith over the past year, your goals for the coming year, and see indeed if your goals and aspirations align with one who belongs to Christ. Test yourself. Confirm your calling and election. Examine but we test so that we are not deceived. 
not so that we can puff ourselves up with proud arrogance. I know that I'm doing well, I'm a Christian, good for me. But so that we would not be deceived in thinking that we are doing something or are something when we are indeed nothing. This is what he means in verse 3. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Therefore, verse 4, let each one test his own work. So the reason you are to test and examine yourself, Christian, is to confirm your calling and election, but also to verify that you are not being deceived. You can humble yourself. Inevitably, you will find many ways where you failed and must rely upon God's grace. Of course, that begs the question, what then would be the standard of our testing? Test ourselves by what standard? Well, he says, it is not to be other people. Test his own work. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor there at the end of verse 4. You are to test your own work and not other people's. That is, the measuring stick by which we judge ourselves will not and cannot be how well we compare to other people, how well they're doing, how much Bible they're reading, how often they come to church, how early they come, or how late they stay, or how well their children behave, or what kind of Bible study they've gotten, how many books they've read, or how biblical they look, or how often they quote the Bible in conversation. Those can be great traits to emulate, but that is not the measuring stick as you examine yourselves, Paul says. The measuring stick is how faithfully you have kept in step with the Spirit as He leads you. Again, look in verse 25 of chapter 5, just a few verses above. We live by the Spirit. And if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. That is, obeying and following the leading of the Spirit in the Word of God with the people of God. Let me give you an example or an analogy. Consider yourself walking through the airport. And in one hand, you have your own luggage or suitcase. Now, it's not particularly heavy, and it's not the one you're rolling, it's one you carry. And each one of us is encouraged to carry our own. But the person you're traveling not only has their own suitcase, but strapped to their back a great, large burden weighing them down. You can hear the bones crack as they walk through the terminal, which is all the way on the other end of the airport, which it always is. And your job is to, without letting go of your luggage, help with your free hand to carry and lift the burden of others. This is what Paul encourages us to do. So we are to faithfully keep in step with the Spirit by caring for others. That's the third mark of Christian maturity, to bear our own load as we care for others. So the first was to keep watch on ourselves, The second was to test ourselves and our own work by the Spirit. Third is to bear your own load. Mature Christians bear their own load. Okay, this isn't a contradiction to what Paul has just said in verse 2, namely to bear one another's burdens. It's a different word. Burden and load is a different word here. The word for burden in verse 2 is something like a heaviness. No one person can or should carry this heaviness alone. Trial, sin, vexation, trouble. But the word here in verse 5, translated load, it's more like a burden of responsibility. It's something that each person must carry for themselves. It's the suitcase of your own luggage which no one else can carry for you. With one hand you carry your own load, and with the other hand you are free to lighten the burden of others. But you must never drop 
your own. You never drop or let go of what is in your hand and what has been given to you by Christ. That is the responsibility to live and obey the word. More specifically here in verse 5, this is important. The, the tense of Paul's language is looking to the future. It's not so much focused on the here and now, but when Paul says in verse 5, where each will have to bear his own load, you can see it in the text, he is looking to the future of a coming judgment or examination in which we will have been held accountable for our own responsibilities. And so we bear for the, the burden of others, the heaviness we lift off of others. But each one of us have a load of responsibility we are to bear uniquely for ourselves. So what he has in mind here is not so much our own self-discipline or our regulus, rigu- rigorous self-attention, but this inescapable truth that one day every one of us will be held responsible for our own lives before God. Every one of us will stand before God and will give an account for every word, every thought, every deed, how we've lived our lives, how we've made use of the gospel, or how we've squandered the gifts that he's given us. There will be an evaluation, not by others, not by ourselves, but by God. And it will not be to determine our fitness to enter heaven. For Christians, that has been secured and answered, determined already. But this examination will be to determine how faithfully you have built your lives on the reality of the gospel and how well, in light of that gospel, you have faithfully loved and served others. You will be given an account for every opportunity that you squander to care for or love another person. You must give an account. For every word of encouragement you failed or refused to say, you will give an account. On that day, no one else can carry your load or your burden. No one else can answer for you. In our confession, and our assurance, we read in the Psalms that said, If you, O Lord, would mark iniquity, O Lord, who could stand? The answer, of course, is as we face that judgment, all of us will find ourselves wanting. But the mature Christian will press themselves into the role and responsibility of caring for others out of a duty and obligation to Christ for his love. No one else can do this or bear this responsibility. Each one of us will carry our own load. A mature Christian understands this and is so motivated by his allegiance and affection and obedience to God that he does not neglect his soul. Our lives must not be lived in comparison to other people. It's not to be lived in view of their judgments, of what we think of of them or what they may think of us. Our lives are to be lived in view of God's judgment alone. That's what it means to bear your own load, to live in light of God's judgment alone. This is the freedom that Christ has procured for us to enjoy, purchased with his own life and his own death. He who knew no sin became sin that you might become the righteousness of God. Your righteousness then is a gift stewarded to you that you would earn not your salvation, but you would walk in freedom, enjoying the good and gracious gifts of God and the fruit of the Spirit in love and service to others. Now, concerning verse 6, he goes on to say, Let those one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Now, most scholars, and myself included, not that I am a scholar, but with the scholars there, we're not quite sure what verse 6 is doing here and how it connects to everything. It seems a bit independent. It doesn't really seem to fit well with the surrounding verses. 
And some of the attempts to make connections, in my mind, seemed a little bit strained. And this is probably because Paul, when he says this, is simply addressing an issue that's well known to the Galatians that's just not well known to us. And so we'll ask Paul and the Galatians when we get to heaven. But I think it may be what Paul is getting at here is that Paul is exhorting the churches not to just care for those who need restoration, like that in verse 1, who need restoration because of sin, but he's exhorting churches to support those who labor in preaching and teaching. Why? Because I think the reason is that the issue comes up here because Paul wants to connect the issue of standing before God, all of us being accountable, all who must bear their own load. He wants to connect that issue of standing before God, bearing our own load, being responsible for our own lives. He wants to connect that with our attitude and our reception of His Word. Normally, of course, which is delivered through the mouth of a gifted servant, a pastor, a preacher, a counselor, a friend. So how we think about, treat, and receive the Word of God as it's given to us, whether through a Sunday morning sermon or through a Bible study, a community group, or a friend over coffee, how we receive those who instruct us, encourage us, counsel us in the Word, has a direct bearing on the kind of outcome we can expect in that day of judgment. Again, we're not here thinking specifically saved, unsaved, but rather, well done, my good and faithful servant. My word was given and was received with gladness. So he says here, encourage and provide for, support those who instruct you in the word. This shows that you have a value placed upon God's word and therefore all the more in God himself in the coming judgment. It's a God-word attitude. So because sermons and Bible teachings help prepare and shape Christians to face God through God's word, what he says in verse 6 is that the support of those who are instructors by those who are instructed will demonstrate the value and the priority of Scripture in your life. Ultimately, the value and the priority of God in your life. And so it's really less about the preacher. It's not here primarily a call for you to pay your pastor as well, although yes and amen. <laughs> it is more about the hearer who values the word for the sake of his own soul. And so, of course, in a given opportunity, set aside money to care for a pastor or gift of men who can lead the church in the word. So the mature Christian will keep watch on themselves, will test their own work, and will bear their own load. Fourth, a mature Christian shows to the Spirit. Verses 7 and 9. Do not be deceived, he says, God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will reap from the flesh corruption, but one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. In light of the coming judgment that he's just spoken about, in which all must give an, an account individually of themselves to God, Paul here now affirms that a life that cares little for the things of God and of other people, that so into the flesh, that is consumed only with itself and its own desires, will inevitably reap the bitter fruit of harvest. This is what he means when he says that God cannot be mocked or is not mocked. Now he's not here referring to some sort of biblical karma, what comes around goes around, that you'll get what you deserve. He's referring to biblical justice. Those who sow to the flesh will reap destruction or corruption, it says in the ESV. This is biblical justice. 
actions which are sown to the flesh, that is, in the carnal desire of our nature. Remember the works of the flesh there in chapter 5. Those who are walking in the works of the flesh demonstrate a destructively foolish and a nearsighted contempt of God. That's what it means to mock God, to hold Him in contempt, in derision. And what Paul says here is that those who sow to the flesh will reap corruption. That sowing will be answered in due course. The bitter fruit of the flesh will be God's judgment. But there's a positive exhortation here then to sow to the Spirit so that you may reap the fruit of eternal life. The positive exhortation is to sow to the Spirit in order to reap eternal life. So does this mean that Paul's contradicting himself again, that he's saying that our salvation is conditioned upon our sowing of the Spirit, the walking and the doing according to the Spirit? No, not at all. The sowing to the Spirit is the work of those already in possession of the Spirit and of eternal life who are now tending to the work of true spirituality. Those who are spiritual, that's Christian maturity. So Christians who are mature sow to the Spirit because they possess the Spirit through which and by whom they sow. They are tending to the work of true spirituality, that the fruit of the Spirit would be ripened into maturity and be more evident in their lives. That is, they're tending to the work of Christian living. And what does it mean to sow to the Spirit and not to the flesh? Well, really practically, friends, it means that you're making a conscious choice to do what accords with eternal life, what accords with the gospel, and not what accords with the flesh. You sow the seed or into the Spirit even when the payoff, the harvest of the fruit, is slow in coming. Instead of doing what accords with the flesh in order to get that instant gratification. To sow to the Spirit means making conscious choices to do what the Spirit has called and led you to do in light of the gospel, even if the payoff of that fruit is slow in coming, instead of seeking instant gratification by satisfying the longing desires of the flesh. So those who are mature are going to sow to the Spirit, to consciously make choices that align with the gospel's call in our lives and step with the Spirit and not in step with the flesh. This, of course, stacks on the other goals of the mature Christian to examine yourself to know where those conscious decisions need to be made. Now remember, Paul is focusing our attention much further down the road there in chapter 5, or verse 5, to this coming future judgment. And so he's saying that you need to think about longer down the road as you sow to the Spirit. Patience is not often given to us overnight, although the lusts and the desires of our flesh are often satisfied in an instant. The seed of redemption and regeneration and repentance is often years and years, if at all, slow in coming as we pray for the unbelievers in our lives. The laboring, the striving, the tending to can be slow, but the harvest is certain. Read Mark 4. Jesus tells in the parable of the sower that God's harvest will come because He provides the growth. We plant, we water, we go to bed, we wake up, the seed is grown. We don't know how it came. But it is God who provides the harvest, however long it may take. So Christian, if you desire to be mature, in 2023, you must sow to the Spirit. Lastly, mature Christians do good to everyone. Verse 9 and 10. He says, let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Notice he's still focused on that coming judgment. In due season 
we will reap if we do not give up. And so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are in the household of faith. We put it this way, the proper result of a Christian maturity that is rooted in the Spirit is a commitment to serve others because of the conviction that this kind of doing good, the serving of others, is exactly the kind of work which bears fruit for God. Do not grow weary. It is the good work. That is the work God wants you to do. That is the fruit that God desires to grow. And therefore, persistence is needed. It's why we must look to ourselves and tend to what needs tending to. Why we must examine and strive. Why the call here is to not grow weary in doing good and to not give up. So friends, if you're growing weary, if you feel weary, at the end of the year, growing, tending to, and no fruit has seemed to grow into maturity in your life, know, friends, that at the very least, that of patience is there. Do not give up. Keep going in your doing of good. If you feel like you haven't started or stumbled along the way, begin and start again now. Do not grow weary and do not give up, but continue to do good because that is the fruit of mature Christians that gives honor and glory to God. Notice what he says there at the end in verse 10. To do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. That is, you should prioritize the body of believers who enable you and empower you to do this through the Spirit. This isn't, of course, a dig at non-Christians. It's not a permission to neglect the care of others. It doesn't say that Christians are better people than non-Christians, but simply is a summons for mature believers who desire to do good, to grow in the fruit of the Spirit, to be mature, to place themselves inside of the community in which this will happen in which mutual commitment and a belonging together are fostered in the church to those who are of the household of faith. It's a reminder that the people sitting around you right now, to your left and right, to front and behind, need you. And the unique relationship you have with them, you share with them because of your unity in Christ, means that you also have a unique obligation to help them and to help meet that need. Now the reason this for this is simple. Galatians chapter 3, Paul's already made this point. He says that many of you were baptized into Christ and have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, nor slave nor free. There is male nor male, no male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So the obligation you have to the others of the household of faith is the same obligation you have to yourself. Just as you care for your own body, you wash your body, you care for your body, you feed your body, if you're hurt, you work to heal your body, go to the doctor, you care for, tend to, so must we recognize as we are united together in one body, we care for one another in the same way. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul puts it this way, I therefore, prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, notice the parallel here with Galatians, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit, in the bond of peace. For there is one body and one spirit, and just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Christians, the unity that we have with one another in Christ means that we are to care for and prioritize the belonging together, the commitment and the mutual love we share with one another so that we can walk together in this growth. And so the five marks here of maturity 
really amount to trusting in Christ, being united to Christ, without which all of this would be vain work. Your diligent seeking after, keeping watch on yourselves, your testing, your examination, your carrying your own load, your thinking of the coming judgment is all for naught if you are not united to Christ by faith and are not placed in the body of Christ with other believers who are walking with you in commitment and mutual love. Christ died for your sins so that you may be forgiven and united to him by faith. Not by your works, not by your creativity, not by the cleaning up of your life, but by your throwing yourself on his grace for the forgiveness of your sin that you may be one with him, your life would be hid with him, and you are one in Christ together. So a mature Christian looks like one who has trusted Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and walks in light of that truth, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, so that it may have a true cruciform impact on your life as you seek maturity in 2022. How will you tend to do this? What is God calling you to change or to prioritize this year? Ultimately and most importantly, how will the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus impact your life starting today? Friends, do not delay. Give yourself to the Lord even this morning. Beg Him for the forgiveness offered to you in Christ. Christians, remind yourself of the forgiveness you have in Christ and commit yourself to walking in Christ through the Spirit towards maturity. Father, we thank you. We ask God for your help in doing this well. We see the clear goal of our lives is Christ-likeness, Christ-centeredness, ultimately leading us to stand before you in judgment and having been declared righteous, receiving the blessing of eternal life and giving an account of our lives that we pray, Lord, by your help, would be one of dependence and allegiance and of love for you. But many of us, we know, Lord, have failed in this, not just this past year, this past week. And so we ask God as we, we look and we take in your providence the opportunity to look forward this new year, to, to make the commitment now to walk in light of the gospel, towards the maturity, the picture of maturity Paul displays here by your grace, by the strength of the Spirit. Lord, we love you as always, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All sermons are released under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, no derivative 3.0 license. If you would like to learn more or listen to past sermons, please visit us at foundationfxbg.com. i yeah.